Now, faith is one of those religious kind of Bible terms that because we use it a lot, it can mean everything and therefore it means nothing. So as we begin this series on the life of Abraham, I thought it would be helpful to think a little bit about faith in two very simple ways. You already know this, but it's a good review. Uh, we talk about saving faith. That's a faith that when you, when I trusted Christ and Christ alone, you placed your faith, your belief, your trust in Christ to do for you what you can never do for yourself. You might have been a child uh, after your mom or dad read you a devotion by your bedside. It might have been in a Christian camp. It might have been at a young life retreat. It might have been in college. It might have been as a young adult. But someone shared the gospel with you or you read some materials and it made sense. It clicked with your head and your heart and your will and said, I believe this. I understand this finally. And in some way, shape, or form, as best you knew how, you articulated that I'm trusting in Christ and Christ alone for my salvation. And things changed. Maybe not everything, but something changed. There was some measurable difference, the way you looked at life, the way you felt. That saving faith begins something, doesn't it? But it doesn't stop there. It's just the beginning. But we look at that point in time faith. Now, granted, some of us might say, you know, I came to Christ in college. I can't tell you the time and place. But for most of us, we might know a time frame or even a day. You might have written the date in front of a Bible. That was the day you trusted in Christ and Christ alone. Now, after that, we grow in faith. It's living faithfully. So there's a point in time, saving faith, we might call it, then a sanctifying faith. How do we live with the information we receive? When we're exposed to new truth, when we're exposed to sin, when we're exposed to, oh, that's a wrong attitude I've had, when we're exposed to how the Word conforms us and begins to transform us, we have this collision with our old self and the new self. And we begin grappling. We talk about carnal Christians sometime and whatnot. All these terms to try to explain we're what? We're becoming less like our former sinful self and more like our sinless Savior. That's the objective. Sanctification. So there's a point in time faith and then faithfulness, living faithfully. If you tell a child something and they believe you, they're expressing more than likely a point in time faith. My second daughter played soccer for 14 seasons. She was quite the athlete. And we, uh, she was so good that we had to have a reward system. She had to make you know, a goal to get an icy. And uh, so it was an incentive, but also it was a way to win a game. I bribe her with an icy. If you get, you know, get a goal. And so if she'd make two or three goals, she'd want two or three icies. <laughs> well, Dad, you said... And she believed me. Now, if she didn't make a goal, but maybe got close, she said, well, I almost got a goal. And that's not what I said. But if she made a goal, she looked at me and knew I get an icy when I go home today. She believed what I told her. Children have a childlike faith. If you tell them something, they believe you. Do you believe God at his word? That's a childlike faith. If you trust him, you believe in him, it's no different than your parent telling you, we'll go do this, we'll go do that, we'll buy you a pony for your 15th birthday, whatever it is, you believe that person. Saving faith is one thing, faithfulness is quite another. When Cindy and I said, I do, 30, almost 35 years ago this July, uh, to be faithful to one another. That's a little different than walking down an aisle and saying words in front of a minister. That's a point in time. We're going to say yes the rest of our lives together? Ay, 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 what are we thinking? <laughs> Faithfulness is different than a point in time faith. Open your Bible to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, 
is impossible to explain simply. The theology, the content, what God accomplishes in this one chapter is truly an otherworldly piece of literature. Not, is the, not only the whole book of Scripture, but the way this book begins is so striking. Elohim is presented as the sovereign creator and sustainer of all life. And in Genesis 1, 1 to 3, we read, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And if you were to scan down in your Bible, you would see verse 4, God saw, God separated, God called, He called, God said, God made, God called, God said, God called, God saw, God said. You cannot miss that God is the primary subject. You cannot miss that the verbal activity is all coming from the sovereign creator and sustainer of all. He begins this book we call the Bible with a statement that God has spoken things into existence. And this begins a context where he's going to put man eventually. Umberto Casuto, who's written without equal, the definitive commentary on the first few chapters of the book of Genesis, a, a rabbi, long dead, um, writes, the purpose of the Torah in this section, what I just read, is to teach us that the whole world and all that it contains were created by the word of the one God, according to his will, which operates without restraint. Everything we just read establishes with a word God can create. He can take nothing, tohu v'bohu, chaos. He can take nothing, and with a word he can speak creation. And he will build a context for man to indwell. Now, we went through Genesis 1 through 12 a few years back, and I know you'll remember all this as a review, but uh, it, it struck me as I was rereading some of Casuto's early notes, in chapter 1 alone, I won't read you the whole thing, but he parses out there are ten sayings according to the Talmud and how God created the world. There were ten utterances of God beginning with the words and said. There are seven divine fiats. To wit, let there be light, and there was a firmament. Let there be waters gathered together. Let, 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 let all these. The terms light and day are found seven times in the first paragraph. There are seven references to light in the fourth paragraph. Water, seven times in the course of the two paragraphs. The fifth and sixth paragraph, the word living beast, seven times. The expression, it was good, seven times. The second verse contains 14 words, twice times seven. On and on and on he goes. And then he says this. To suppose that this is all mere coincidence is not possible. Now here's a Jewish rabbi that does not believe the way you and I believe about this book. And he's saying, this is an otherworldly chapter. In the beginning, God says something, and creation begins. Now, if that weren't enough, the culmination of this entire creation is to put man in a context. So if you look down at chapter 1, verse 26, you'll see the creation of man. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, these two image bearers are unlike anything else. 
when God creates man in his image, we've talked about this many times before, the pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus, that's before he's born of Mary, pre-incarnate, are called theophanies. So we have a theophany of Jesus when he talks to Adam, or a Christophany sometimes called. We have a theophany when, when the angel of the Lord wrestles with uh, Jacob. When the angels come and visit Abraham later on, that's a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Make sense? So when we have these pre-incarnate appearances, we look at the text carefully. Why is God showing up in this pre-incarnate form? He's going to create Adam. And we've looked at this a lot of detail. The word for dirt in Hebrew is Adam, A-D-M in the way we transliterate. And his name is Adam. It's, it's very poignant. Can't be missed. He made him out of dirt. He's a dirt man. He makes all the animals out of dirt. And he makes them with his hands. Use your sanctified imagination. He's not sitting there, you know, science fiction-like. He makes them. And he breathes life into them. And they become a living being. But when he creates the man, he creates him in his image. Everything else is under him. Man is the crown of creation. He's the one that, we might say, looks like Jesus. Not just in corporal form, but there's an identity there. Three times in the passage I read, our image, in our likeness, in our image, the image of God, male and female. So these human beings aren't just one more of the primordial soup that climbed up. They're the very image bearers of God that he fashioned. These two become one to reflect his image and to be his image bearers. The explanation of the man and woman continue in chapter 2 down at verse 20. Genesis 2 verse 20. And you'll notice above, verse 19, out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast. That's the same word, Adama, the ground. Verse 20, the man gave names to all the cattle, to all the birds of the sky, to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And some wag said, and he's been sleeping ever since. Then he took one of the ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. Stop for just a second. Everything else he forms out of the dirt, but this one he fashions. He took bone and flesh from the man. The man's cognizant of that when he wakes up that it was from bone and flesh. And unlike the maid, this one's fashioned. And that Hebrew word is a beautiful word. It's if you went to a custom tailor and had a custom suit or a custom dress or a custom glove made precisely for you, that's fashioned. So he makes the woman not from Adam, from bone and flesh. Chrysostom said, he didn't, remember, he did not take her from his head that she should rule over him, nor his feet that she should be under his uh, service, but from his side, near his heart under his arm to receive his love, care, protection. From the rib and bone and tissue here, he fashions this hand-and-glove woman for him. And the two of them are the image of God. Let me also say that I believe these are the two most brilliant people that ever walked the planet. They did not crawl up out of a cave. They didn't drag their knuckles and one day they were homo erectus. They're made in the image of God. Not the image of an ape, the image of God. And they commune with God. And they have a relationship with Him. And they haven't sinned yet. 
And you can't miss the identity of Scripture going in the image of God and our likeness. He created them male and female. He made them to have a unique relationship placed in a context of a garden, we call it, that he set man as the crown of his creation. The man has had the job of naming things. He named the animals when they came to him. So when the man wakes up from this first anesthesia in verse 25, he says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He knew his rib had been taken. She shall be called woman because she is taken out of man. And again, the Hebrew terms are very beautiful. It's probably the most beautiful piece of poetry so far in the book of Genesis. And what he's saying is the word for, for he, man here is ish. And he says, ma'ish, meaning from me, ish-ah. He's ish and she's ish-ah. So you just put a suffix on the end, a-h, and you have ish, ish-ah. Now, we're in this gender um, crazy world where, you know, if you, don't, if you say mankind, you're sexist. I'm, I'm, I'm eager for when they go after grammars and say you can't call nouns and verbs feminine or masculine anymore because that's sexist. Now, the world has gone nuts with this whole thing, but the word man is the root, and in English, wo-man is put in front of it. It's not bad to call that mankind, but it's certainly politically incorrect. In the scripture, it's ish, ish-ah. What's he saying? She's from me. This one isn't like the other ones that have come up and I've given them a name. This one's part of me, and he names or something. So when you get married, you take your husband's last name, most of you. Some might hyphenate, whatever you want to do, that's cool. Um, I've talked to women that don't want to take their husband's name because they, they want to keep their maiden name. They don't want to be subject to a chauvinistic name. And in my kind, you know, pastoral way, I say, you're going to keep your maiden name. Yeah, I say, what's your maiden name? Now look at me. That's your father's name. <laughs> There's no maiden name. It's your father's name. You're perpetuating his chauvinism. <laughs> which is probably worse than the guy you're marrying. <laughs> Don't let the world teach you theology, guys. A name is solidarity. It's not your husband's name you're taking on. Two are becoming one. If you really want to be, you know, fussy about it, make a new name up. <laughs> For goodness sakes, hang on to your maiden name. Go back in your lineage. You won't find a woman's name in there. It's transferred down through Western European cultures. It's the man's name. I'm sorry. That's not the point. It's solidarity. Ish, ish, ah, we're the same. We're not like anything else out there. And you're made in God's image to worship him and have a relationship with him. God the Father has spoken into existence creation. He's made a magnificent palette to place the culmination of his creative work, a man and a woman, in that garden to have a perfect relationship with one another and with him. It is Eden. It is heaven on earth. It's as good as it was ever going to get. And in this image, man in his likeness has dominion over all. Man and woman are both equal before God. Man and woman are both unique and distinct in their roles, but they stand equal before God. They become one flesh. Verse 25, they're naked and not ashamed. The chapter ends on a key term. And that word naked will soon take on a very different meaning. Chapter 3, we have the fall. The serpent was more crafty than any, feast, uh, any beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, 
has God said. That is the beginning of all temptation, whether it's someone else or ourselves. Has God said? What have we just seen in Genesis 1? God said, God called, God said, God called, God said, God did, God made. What is the first thing he says? Has God said? It can't be more obvious to the casual reader. We spent a whole chapter recording what God said and what he did, and the serpent says, has God said? And that's where it always begins. Do you believe the word or the world's take on the word? Has God said? You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. And you know the story. Verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. He had told the man in chapter 2, verse 17, that in the day he ate from it, literally the Hebrew says, dying you will die. Surely you will die. And the serpent's challenge is, you won't die. A half-truth is always a full lie. Verse 5, the God knows in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Half-truth is a whole lie. Yeah, you'll be like God. You'll know good and evil. You won't be like God. You'll be like God in knowing evil. God knows evil. You don't right now. But as soon as you do this, you will. And, of course, we read the sad verse. Verse 6, the woman saw the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. And it's worth pointing out again, if you've not seen it before, there's no indication that Adam was off somewhere else by himself alone. He's right there standing beside her. He does nothing to interfere. He doesn't tell her, stop. He's just as culpable as the woman. She takes, she eats, and it says right there, he was with him, with her, and he took and he ate also. And the fall begins. Then the eyes of both of them were open, verse 7, and they knew that they were naked. Wait a minute, verse 25, they're naked and not ashamed. Now they know they're naked. The first thing that happens after they sinned, shame, and they hide themselves. They hear the sound of the Lord, verse 8, walking in the garden. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Verse 9, the first question God asks man in the Bible, the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? You want to do a great study in your own devotions. Just start here and go through the next few chapters and look at the questions that God asks man. It'll blow your mind. It'll blow your mind. Where are you? It's not hide and seek. Where are you in relationship to me? Why are you hiding? Where are you, Adam? I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. Third time the word cursed. Chapter 225, uh, I was naked. They know they're naked in verse 7. Third time he says, I was naked and I hid myself. Next question, God asked him, who told you that you were naked? The fall begins and the spiral is unstoppable. God curses the ground and he curses the serpent. If we were to take time to read the, the vocabulary used, I would argue he does not curse his image bearers. He does not curse the woman and therefore your childbirth is going to be difficult. He doesn't curse the man and say he curses the ground and he curses the serpent. Now they're in a fallen context and they're going to live under that curse. But God does not in this chapter curse his image bearers. 
In this life that Adam and Eve had, however long or short it was, um, I've studied this endlessly, and I don't have, there's no way to know, but the grammar is suspiciously scary that this could have happened within the first day. There's no time stamp in the text otherwise. The day happens, all the seven days are recorded. He's, after he and the woman are created, they're naked and not ashamed. There's nothing in the text that says 10 years went by. All the more chilling. Well, after the curse in verse 22, in verse 20, 20 excuse me, of chapter 3, Adam changes his wife's name. The man called his wife's name Eve, which means living or life. Why does he do that? Adam's got faith in something. We don't know all the backstory, what's going on in the garden context, but we can make a safe conclusion. Why does he change her name? Adam named everything that God brought before him. That was his job. That was his assignment from God. I'll bring these pairs of animals and you, you classify them. So when the woman's born, she's Ish-ah. Ish-ish-ah, she's from me. We're one and the same, not like the rest of the animal kingdom. But then he says, your life. So Adam knew enough in his brilliant state after the fall to know that life would come from her in chapter 4. She gets a man-child. I love the King James English. It says, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth after that to Cain to Abel, verse 2. And Abel was the keeper of the flocks. Cain was the tiller of the ground. Came in the course of time. Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel on his part also brought the firstlings of his flock and of the fat portions and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, and as I count, this is the fourth question in the Bible, why are you angry? Talk about a sidebar to think on. You, you angry this morning? You ticked about something? Your stomach in a knot and all? acid refluxed and girt because you're so angry all the time? Would God ask you, why are you angry? He asked Cain that question. Why is your countenance fall? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? If not, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. It's a picture of a lion. Same as the desire in 316. The woman's going to desire to control her husband after the fall now. Sin's desires to control you, Cain. It's right there ready to eat you alive, Cain. And of course, he gives in. He kills his brother. The blood cries out. At the end of chapter 4, Seth is born. Adam had relations with his wife again. She gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring in the place of Abel, for Cain killed him. What an epitaph. A mother to say, Cain killed him. To Seth, to him, also a son was born. He called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. That is a euphemistic phrase for worship. Then people began to worship. Now their generations are born here. We don't have all the details, which we will pick up in chapter 5 and chapter 10 of the Table of Nations. But the generations that have come from this one man and one woman, first the two sons, then Cain kills Abel, then Seth replaces it, and then the lineage explodes and begins. But I would submit there was a faith of Adam that his wife would bear life, and he changed her name. 
And then there's the faith after uh, Abel has been killed that life will come again, and life comes again. And life is a picture of what God created that man can't. Man can kill it. Man can't create it. God has to be the one who creates and acts and brings life. And as the storyline continues in chapter 5, we have the lineage of Adam and all his family. Uh, Noah is going to come through that lineage in chapter 5, verse 29. Then the corruption of mankind in chapter 6, where God then says enough. And in chapter 6, verse 5, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth. And then every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. What a phrase, only evil all the time. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and that he was, and, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things to birds. So all the creation, the created order that he so carefully created, he's now going to destroy because it's fallen, it's corrupt. I am sorry that I've made them. Verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And we have the record of Noah from 8 over, to, jump over to verse 18, a second conjunction there, but I will establish my covenant with you. So in chapter 7, 8 and 7, 18, you have these hinge, part, hinge verses. What's happening? I'm going to destroy mankind, but I'm going to choose a man named Noah and his family and his son's wives, and I'll save them and build the ark, and that'll be the door of salvation, the tool of salvation. God will close the door. The ark will symbolize Christ. The blood will, uh, the water will symbolize the destructive power. The globe will be flooded. But afterwards, he makes a covenant promise to, to Noah that never again will he flood the entire globe. And so every time you see a rainbow, that's the sign of the Noahic covenant. Not some new movement, that's Noah's covenant sign. That never again will God flood the entire world. Now, he'll destroy the world again. It seems from Scripture it will be fire, not a global flood. Well, the flood occurs in chapter 7 and subsides in chapter 8. And from there, the lineage will resume. They'll come out of the ark in chapter uh, uh, 8 and 9, and he'll offer an offering. And then you will read in uh, chapter 9 where the covenant, the rainbow is established. If you pick up verse 6, Whoever sheds man's blood, by his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. There we go back to image bearing. Man is unique of all creation. And he explains that covenant. Chapter 10 is called the Table of Nations. And this is where the population truly explodes after the flood. And all these generations from the sons of Noah are recounted. And then we come to chapter 11 and Babel occurs. Babel is a kind of a comical story. Um, the people come together and they're, they're so proficient, so many of them, they're going to build a city and going to build a tower that goes up to heaven. It's hubris. In fact, they even say, let's look at it briefly, they're going to do it for themselves. Verse 4, chapter 11, Genesis, verse 4. Come, let us build for ourselves a city with a tower whose top, top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. And then the humor in the text, then the Lord came down to see. They're going to build a city and big tower reaches to heaven. The Lord has to come down. It's so, it's so inconsequential, he's got to go down and look at it. Those little ants, they're moving a pebble down there. Verse 7, let us come down there and confuse their language. 
and scatter them. The irony of Babel, they came together with one voice, and nothing they, could, they wanted to do could be stopped. So God confuses their language. And the word Babel is one of the few words in Hebrew that is brought into the English language when a baby babbles. It's babbling. So what happened with the confusion of language? I would argue that the table of nations now has fallen into not only language differences, but ethnicity. We don't like to use the word race today for a lot of reasons, all the uh, political correctness folks, but ethnicity began, I would submit here, along with the time of languages. Makes perfect sense to me. I may not be right, but that's my two cents on it. So now they're dispersed into people groups by language and ethnicity. Fast forward in the book of Acts. We come up to the Passover. Christ has been uh, dead, buried, resurrected. He's come back. He's going to ascend. He'll then send the Holy Spirit to the disciples a little later on, Acts 2. In Acts chapter 1 and 2, all these ethnicities, 13 dialects are recorded in Acts 2, have come up to Passover to worship. And when they go up to worship, they're all speaking this language, and the Holy Spirit comes, and they, that's when we, we hear the story that each one hears his own mother tongue. It's a dialectos. It's their known language. So from a German-Italian origin, that's why I grew up listening to that perhaps. I'm now in Jerusalem where I'm speaking um, Arabic or Aramaic or some other trade language, Greek, and I'm hearing people speak in German or in Italian or whatever my mother tongue was. That was the miracle of Acts 2. So now the Spirit has shown there's one body. So what was confused by trying to make a name for themselves is now reinstigated by a universal language, we might say, of the Holy Spirit. But they don't stop. They're supposed to be dispersed. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and their most part of the earth. They all stay in Jerusalem. So what does he do? He persecutes them. He uses Jewish persecution to get the Christians out of Jerusalem. And in chapter 7, 6 and 7 and 8 of Acts, when they stone Stephen and the church is scattered, the word is to sow seed. You want to assemble on your terms and do your thing, that's not acceptable. You want to do what I want you to do, I want to scatter you into the whole earth to do what I want you to do. And so the languages that were confused in Babel and differentiated man and ethnicity are going to be reunited in the new covenant and the new kingdom. And oh, by the way, Abram's going to be a blessing to all nations, not just the Jew. Well, Noah is a story of faith because he believes God when there seems no reason to believe God. There's never been a flood before. never been rain before he believes God. Babel occurs. The destruction occurs. Uh, the, the, the dispersion, rather, occurs after that. And let's find our way, finally, to Abraham in chapter 12. Now the Lord God said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives, from your father's house, to a land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. So you will be a blessing is a better way to read it. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Contrary to Babel, coming together to make a city for yourself, to make a name for yourselves, to reach to heaven. Contrary to that, I'm going to choose a man named Abram. And through him, I'll bless the entire world. And lastly, turn over to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. 
Romans chapter 4, Paul will spend beautiful uh, time explaining that the law came after Abraham. Abraham comes to Christ by faith. Abraham believes God and has reckoned him as righteousness. The law has not yet come on the scene. Moses will be later. There's no Ten Commandments yet in the life of Abraham. And Paul's arguing justification by faith in a very long argument, and he uses Abraham as a key part of his argument. Chapter 4, at the beginning, what shall we say then? Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, was found. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited, some of your Bibles say, reckoned to him as righteousness. And that's the, uh, that's the argument he's establishing. Now drop down to verse 17, and we're almost done. Romans 4, 17. As it is written, a father of many nations, I have made you. In the presence of him who he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. That's just that's Genesis 1, what we just read. In hope against hope, he, Abraham, believed so that he might become a father of many nations according to which had been spoken. So shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body now as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was also able to perform. One, he hopes against hope. He hopes and believes no matter what his circumstances are. His wife's womb is dead. He's past childbearing age. You can't do this. He's holding on to a promise. He hopes against hope. Number two, he's not weak in his circumstance. Verse 19, without becoming weak. It's a good picture of faith. It's not that we have to have strong faith or muster up faith or exercise faith. It's faith that we either believe God at his word or we don't. Some of your Bibles even use the word double-minded there. It's the same word James uses about not wavering in verse 20 in unbelief. Do I believe God at his word or don't I? I'm not sure. The world doesn't believe God's word. Tragically, most churches no longer believe God's word. So you're wavering in what we believe. Abraham kept on believing. Notice, lastly, he says, being fully assured that what God had promised he was able to perform. And that's that faith in a nutshell. God has said something. Do you believe it? When you and I trusted Christ at that moment of time-saving faith, we said, I believe in Christ, in Christ alone, that he will forgive me of my sins, he will make me part of his family, that I'll live forever with him eternally in the presence of Jesus Christ in his heaven. That's saving faith. We hang on to that with everything. We believe it. Some of us have heard it so often, once saved, always saved, check the box. I know, I'm sure I'm going to heaven, end of story. But do we believe anything else he said? It strikes me ironic, we believe that he'll save us in the end, but we don't live that faithfully in between. I don't all the time. I'm sure you struggle with it too. Living faithfully is a lot different than saving faith. But it comes back to the simple question, has God said it's what the serpent asked. It's essentially what Cain asks. It's what all the patriarchs ask. 
And Abram is given to us as a model who didn't waver in unbelief. Did he make mistakes? Oh, did he? We'll look at him in the weeks to come. He made a lot of mistakes. He sinned a lot. But he believed God. At the end of the day, that's what it boils down to. Do you believe him at his word? What has his promise been to you? His promise to you and me hasn't been we'll have a multitude. At least I sure hope I'm not going to have a multitude of descendants. Oh, boy. Raising four has been enough. Some grandchildren maybe, but I don't want innumerable children, do you? If you do, good for you. You're better than me. What promises has he made you? He'll forgive you. He'll sanctify you. He'll conform you into the image of Jesus Christ. He'll be merciful to you. He'll always be with you. He'll never leave you or forsake you. He loves you completely. He cares about you immeasurably. He knows everything about you and still calls you his own. He's not mad at you. He's patient beyond patient with you and me. Those are the promises of God to begin with. There are lots of them. But you and I need to be reminded of those promises, and that's how we live by faith. This life's broken. It doesn't work the way we want. People will take advantage of us, betray us, break our hearts. Children, spouses, grandchildren, business partners, people in the world, they will hurt us. Bad things will happen. We'll get sick. All sorts of stuff will come along. That's the world we live in since the man and the woman fell. But do you live faithfully regardless of your circumstances? That's the question for me. That's the question for all of us. Father, we thank you for your word. Again, help us to be men and women who believe you at your word, who take you at your word, that when we read God said and God has spoken, that that cements it for us. There's no debate. There's no de denying it. There's no working around it. May we not be afraid to stand on the scripture when it's hard and uncomfortable. And may we not be uh, worried or fearful of what others of the world will say. Give us the courage to hope against hope, to know that you're God and you love us. You've forgiven us and you care for us. We love you, Father. Help us to love you well. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great week.